You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bill Gilley, I'm professor of biology at Stanford University, and I work at Hopkins Marine Station in Pacific Grove. I'm Susan Chillinglaw, and I'm a professor of English at San Jose State University and scholar-in-residence at the National Steinbeck Center in Salinas. Well, thank you for having me in, in your home. Very much appreciate it. And you both presented recently at the National Steinbeck Center's Steinbeck Festival, which focused on Steinbeck and Mexico. And um, Professor Schillinglaw, you kind of opened things up with a talk about how Mexico shows up in his work. And you were saying that over a third of his writing includes some characters and references, et cetera, to Mexico. Can you talk a, a little bit about what you spoke on? Well, I talked about Steinbeck's fascination with Mexico. He wanted to go there um, the early 30s on. It was the country that just called to him. He wanted to go there in college. Uh, I think in part because it represents a kind of counter to what he didn't like in his own country, um, materialism, greed. Um, he often called, called it Salinas thinking, especially when he was writing Grapes of Wrath, a sense of um, just sort of smug complacency. So he wrote about Mexico a lot. Well, I wonder if you could take us through maybe one of his works, perhaps Tortilla Flat or another, and, and just point out kind of how he threads that culture through it or what aspects of the Mexican culture he emphasizes or uses to tell his story. Okay, well, Tortilla Flat, um, you know, he's obviously writing both about Mexico and about Mexican-Americans, uh, life in the United States, and Tortilla Flat is certainly about an enclave of sort of ne'er-do-wells in Monterey, most of whom were based on people he knew and stories told him by a very well-known high school teacher named Sue Gregory, who, uh, who was sort of a mother superior to the paisanos of Monterey. But what he's doing in that book, I think, is really describing not all Mexicans, but just a, you know, sort of a group um, who lived in Monterey, and many people think that it sort of stereotypes Mexicans as lazy, etc., you know, drinking a lot. But what he's really doing is, um, he bases it on the round table. He's really talking about what keeps this group of people together, and it's friends. So you're talking about, like, King Arthur's yes, round that's, table. Yes, that's the sort of frame for the narrative, uh, that they're not unlike uh, the, the round table knights. And so it's sort of mock heroic, the whole the whole book. But what he's really talking about is what are the values that are positive about these people. And, uh, you know, even though, yes, they drink a lot, he says it's not that they want, you know, that they crave wine, they want what it brings, which is friendship, camaraderie, sort of stories told together, you know, a sense of how does a unit become one. And so, you know, a lot of the book is very, you know, positive about values that are, you know, not about getting and spending. They're always kind of a parody of capitalism in Tortilla Flat. He's parroting sort of capitalism, getting and spending, et cetera, because they don't, they just get the money they need. They kind of borrow, they base it on, you know, they, you know, sort of mock thievery. <laughs> Professor Gilly, uh, and your presentation about, well, in the Steinbeck Festival uh, was about a trip you took to recreate the 1941 journey 
to the Sea of Cortez that John Steinbeck and Ed Ricketts did together, which, of course, culminated in the publication of Sea of Cortez. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to recreate their trip. Well, we'd always been admirers. Uh, the participants in this uh, trip that we did had always been longtime admirers of the Sea of Cortez, the log of the Sea of Cortez, and the physical place. So um, over the years, we'd talked about it any number of times of wouldn't it be great if someone redid this and sort of seen how things changed. And so um, circumstances just sort of the stars aligned uh, correctly one time, and so we did it. And so the goal was to sort of uh, retrace their exact path, same time of year, do the same type of work, looking at the animals that lived in the rocky intertidal mostly, and try to see how things ch had changed. Uh, the animals, the uh, physical environment, uh, the people there, development, uh, roads, cars, everything. So it was kind of a way of looking at the whole uh, of the Sea of Cortez, um, not just one little element. And you went as a biologist. I, I went as the chief scientist uh, and a biologist, yes. We had another, another invertebrate zoologist along, Chuck Baxter, as uh, one of the core participants. And then we had a, a, a good number of different uh, colleagues that, uh, with different expertises that came and visited for a week, two weeks, three weeks at a time, uh, both Mexican and U.S. scientists. We also, part of the core group was Nancy Burnett, who uh, was the official photographer. Um, John Christensen was a journalist who did a lot of the organizing and fundraising. And Sue Malinowski and Frank Donahue was the captain and owner of the boat. So a few more folks than when uh, Ricketts and Steinbeck took off. Uh, Not too many more. Well, actually, our core crew, I think, was smaller than theirs. But uh, the total number of people we had coming in and off, students, uh, Scientists was, yes, much, much greater. Journalists, uh, there were uh, any number of people came down and spent uh, time on the boat and covered it for various newspapers and NPR. And I think there were times when the boat was a little over full. I slept in a tent the whole time, so I didn't have to worry about the lack of berths. So let me take you backwards just a little bit, and if we can introduce for people what inspired Steinbeck and Ricketts to take this journey in 1940. Well, that's probably a really complicated question, but scientifically they were inspired to look at the southern edge of a, a range that uh, Ricketts was interested in for a long, long time, namely from uh, the rocky, rocky tidal invertebrates from uh, southeastern Alaska all the way to Baja, California. So he had been collecting in northern Baja, Ensenada, and, and that area. Previously, he had done work in Alaska, Canada, and, of course, a lot of work in the Monterey Bay area. So he was trying to put together sort of an overview of the invertebrates of this whole region, of this whole Pacific coast of North America. So the Sea of Cortez was a place that um, was little known at that time, and he was, they were, he, he was very keen to go there, I'm sure. Now, why they chose to go at that time and uh, exactly how they chose, uh, I think Susan would probably be, have the better stories about that one. Well, they were trying to ch um, catch the low tides, so Ricketts knew when the low tides were, so that's why they went in March. But um, I, Steinbeck had just published The Grapes of Wrath the year before, in 1939, and there was just a storm of controversy that er erupted around the book. The language, the um, way it portrayed California, corporate farming, 
the the whole thrust of the book for communal sort of life seemed to suggest socialism and overthrow of capitalism. So, although many reviewers loved the book, many many people criticized it, and, and he was he was just overwhelmed. He wanted to get a getaway. He wanted to not write any more novels. He said the novel, as I know it, is dead. He wanted to go um, work on something else to just sever that sense of being a social commentator. So <clears throat> he turned himself into a scientist, and he, he said, I'm going to turn to science. There's more honesty in science than in the world right now. Um, so also they turned their back on a, you know, sort of a war brewing in Europe. I mean, to go into the Sea of Cortez at this time was seen by some people, or you're just, you know, getting away from not, not that either of them, either Ricketts or Steinbeck was going to enlist, but just that sense of, I think they both wanted an escape. Ricketts had had a love affair that had gone sour and he needed to get away and so it seemed the perfect solution for both of them to have a you know respite actually they had uh, planned to go to san francisco bay they were they, they were they wanted to write a book about san francisco bay um, uh, fauna and that that i think was in the summer of 1939 they no, were it was a winter Christmas. yeah they yeah they were talking about it in the summer and they were going to go that winter and then Somehow between that summer and that winter, they decided to change directions and go to the Sea of Cortez, probably because of the getting out of town factor. Sounds like a likely one. And this wasn't uh, a new idea for Steinbeck to sort of pick up science. He, he studied marine biology, yes? Well, he studied at Hopkins, yes. He took a course in marine biology. He was interested in science. He read, he was reading physics in, you know, 1929. He was trying to, you know, and so he was always interested in sort of science. He had a very curious sort of eclectic mind, interested in ancient history and science and ideas, etc. And he met Ricketts in 1930 when he moved down to the peninsula. Ricketts had been here since 1923, and they became best friends, really soulmates. It was a friendship that was most, definitely the the most intimate of Steinbeck's life and there is a kind of Ricketts character in most of his fiction in the Grapes of Wrath he's Casey and even in East of Eden he's Lee and you know Steinbeck and Ricketts had a kind of oh symbiotic relationship from one another they sort of bounced ideas off one another and there was a kind of electricity there they really meshed and so from Ricketts he learned a lot but Ricketts learned a lot from him but they talked a lot a lot about ideas about group man this whole notion of um, people are, are different in a group than they are individually is something that Ricketts was looking at in terms of communal organization of life of animals in the intertidal looking very carefully participation was a word that they both cared a lot about Darwin they were both talking about Darwin etc so it was a kind of yeah very intimate relationships and so this but Steinbeck turned himself into a marine biologist in the late really 1939 I mean he then not turned himself but he said I'm going to be I'm going to work on this handbook of the San Francisco Bay as a kind of that'll be my high school education in marine biology so then we can go on to greater things was basically the idea well I'm wondering could you uh, explain a little bit about the uh, publication of the Lago Sea of Cortez they came back the book was published, it kind of flopped, kind of, sort of, <laughs> the first time around. Is that fair to say? Well, the first time around, it was um, a couple of factors. One is that Ricketts uh, was responsible for half the book, which was just a very dry 
phyletic catalog, a listing of every species they had found with bibliographic annotations and some notes and qualitative uh, information about how, how many they captured at each place, things like that. So it's 250 or 300 pages of uh, crab after crab, worm after worm. So it's not exactly thrilling reading. Um, but he must have worked very hard on that during that year. In the meantime, Steinbeck was off making a film in Mexico and asked Ricketts to drive his car down there at one point. Susan can elaborate on this, but I imagine there was some friction between them uh, during this period. And the book finally was published uh, a few days before Pearl Harbor was bombed, so probably wasn't the best time to have a book about a scientific exploration of the Sea of Cortez becoming a bestseller. So, And then it was after Ricketts' death, it was republished. It was reissued in 1951, yes, as the log, log from the Sea of Cortez. And that was basically the an idea of Steinbeck's publisher, Pascal Covici. Uh, he wanted, he was always interested in, you know, publishing books in a different way, marketing, etc. And so he thought it would sell more copies if, it, if the phyletic catalog was lopped off. Uh, and he also took off Ricketts' name, which many people object to. Suddenly it's now just Stein, John Steinbeck's log from the Sea of Cortez. Uh, it doesn't seem to be Steinbeck's finest moment to allow that to happen. But I think what in Steinbeck's mind would have been, well, Ricketts is no longer living, you wouldn't really care. And he replaced Ricketts' name with an essay about Ed Ricketts, which used to be the foreword to the book. It's one of the best things that Steinbeck wrote, and it's really a... It's really an elegy, if you will. It's about, it's a memoir about his friend, kind of a pastiche of memories, and it's beautifully written. And I think that was sort of the monument to Ricketts than he, in, he intended. And then the, the log portion of it was written by Steinbeck. He used Ricketts' notes, but it's very much Steinbeck's style. It's very much, you know, what sort of how he wove uh, what happened on that trip and their conversations together. And so it's, it is very much Steinbeck's, and I think he probably thought, well, you know, I'll put my name on my portion of the book. So that's why it only has Steinbeck's name on the, on the log from the Sea of Cortez. Professor Gilly, I wonder if you could uh, recount for me, you've told me in the past about a story uh, when you were down on that trip in 2004 uh, about going and looking for the squid, the Humboldt squid, and, and the experience of that going into the fog and and kind of finding yourself finally uh, kind of close to the spirits of those men you were chasing, or if not chasing, sort of following maybe along their tide pool path. Uh, yeah, and it, was, it was very much uh, the way you describe it. We'd been spending <clears throat> weeks going to all these rocky intertidal places on the coast, uh, crawling on the rocks, counting the animals, uh, getting up at dawn, go out there and getting back on the boat, going to the next place. And it just it, get, it gets quite repetitive. And, <clears throat> excuse me, you can, you can get a sense of that in reading the log. Um, Steinbeck talks about the same thing, about how you can only take so many hours or days of this. And so anyway, after we had done this for at least two weeks, maybe three, and we actually had preceded that with the same sort of approach on the Pacific coast. We'd been doing it a month, I guess. We went... Um, looking for squid, because my, my research program is focused on that right now. Um, <clears throat> and we went out to the middle of the Gulf of California to a place where uh, I had heard that sperm whales frequent. So since sperm whales eat uh, Humboldt squid, um, I would 
I guess that there might be this might be a good place to look for squid. It's very far away. It's in the 50 miles from shore of either coast. Uh, it's a little island there, but that's about it. <clears throat> called uh, Isla San Pedro Martir, and we had a little. We 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 wanted to look for squid um, hatchlings and babies with plankton toes. So one place you look for plankton is where currents converge, where there's upwelling and you know changes in the water that would tend to accumulate organisms <clears throat> for some reason or another. And we uh, had uh, satellite images sent to the boat from a graduate student at Stanford, and we found this uh, area where upwelling was occurring, which, was, which is bringing cold water to the surface. Uh, so it's much like Monterey. Uh, there's cold water that comes to the surface. It's bright and sunny, and it makes fog. Um, when the cold air hits the warm, where the cold water hits the warm air, and the fog is uh, much like that you get in Monterey in the summer. It can be so thick you can't see uh, your arm in front of your face sometimes, but you can see the blue sky and the bright sun. So it's really a, kind of an odd um, place. <clears throat> and so this upwelling event in the middle of the Sea of Cortez had a fog bank like this on it. It was probably. Um, five miles long by a mile wide or something like that but it was just like a cloud on the water and you entered into it and it was sort of like going into some other world that you couldn't see anything and it was cold and wet and dripping and yet the sun was blazing overhead so it was, it was very odd and then you could hear whales uh, you know spouting and um we did plankton toes we did find baby squid of the right kind it was it was really exciting and sort of during that period when we were you're actually too far from land to even see the coast, but then enveloped in this fog. I think uh, John Christensen made some remark that, uh, you know, this, he felt like more in, in tune with the real spirit of the original 1940 trip than he had the whole time before because we were now, like, severed from their history and doing our own uh, new thing, and, and he was absolutely right. And the more I thought about that, the, it, it was a... It sort of really was an awakening and discovery of our own uh, mission and the unknown, and uh, it must have been very much like what they felt going in there in 1940 when uh, there was very little information available. Before there was a Cabo San Lucas with uh, half a million tourists a year, so uh, it was a very moving moment actually to be in there and feel that. Well, um, thank you. I I love that story and um, the non teleological thinking, right, that these men were after, I wonder if you could briefly, if it's possible, define. Yeah, non-teleological thinking is something Ricketts called is thinking. So it's a, <clears throat> it's a way of thinking about complicated um, problems from a holistic point of view, where you recognize that all elements of a complicated problem are interconnected, like the financial meltdown. I mean, that's a very complicated project or problem that's connecting many, many facets of America. And to try to look at that as a simple cause and effect that, oh, people took too many cheap loans or, oh, people made predatory loans is, is just way too simple. And it, in many respects, does a disservice to the whole, con the whole problem-solving concept to try to focus on these simple single cause and effect issues. And that's what our society really wants. And that's what non-teleological thinking is. It's a refutation of that sort of uh, philosophy of trying to pin the blame on one element, uh, global warming. You can name any number of things 
Um, <clears throat> and the real issue is always involves lots of complicated interconnected things. And, and so to say it, something is caused by something else, um, this sort of simple-minded, simplistic uh, cause and effect analysis is what Ricketts called teleological thinking. So his non-teleological thinking was a, a rebellion from that. What it you know, focuses on is, uh, Steinbeck also called it is thinking. Well, both of them did. And it really looks at, okay, let's look at what, as, as Gilly said, let's look at what is. Let's look at the problem as a whole, or let's look at the inner title as a whole, or let's look at human communities and all the sort of intersecting issues, whether it be, say, in Cannery Row, which is a thoroughly non-teleological book. Um, let's look at the, at the, at the people um, on Cannery Row. Let's look at Monterey around Cannery Row. Let's look at um, how these all intersect. So it's it's basically also focusing on just accepting what is. That doesn't mean you're not you're you're quiet or you're passive. Um, it's but it's active participation in. Um, life as lived, if you will. Uh, participation, again, that word participation. Mm. Uh, another thing that Rick had said was that basically you could sort of look at a problem and ask, you, what you did was to observe it and say how it worked. Um, and maybe you could do that in a really complicated problem, but you, you could never really say why it was like that. And it didn't even make sense to say why something is something the way it is because it just is that way. Things evolve in different ways. And there is no real answer to the question, why? It feels almost as if their relationship, uh, Ricketts and Steinbeck, was, was sort of a, almost a, an example or a model of, of what they were talking about, uh, this interconnection and this, this um, interwoven lives, this interdisciplinary uh, work that, that both of you are involved in as well. Uh, and we haven't even talked about the, the courses that, that came out of that first trip in 2004 down to the Sea of Cortez that continue. Um, but um, do you think they were aware at all of themselves as, as in, in some way enacting what they were looking for? Um, I don't know. I think they were conscious of developing a philosophy, uh, but... I don't know that they were overtly conscious of how much they were influencing each other. So, like, I talked in the in the um, Steinbeck Festival talk about the a little essay that Ricketts wrote that described the four levels of ecological thinking as he saw it. And you know, there was level one was naming the species, and level two was which species lived together in close association. Level three was the life history. How did a, a larval snail? grow and get to be the adult snail in a certain place. And four was the emergence of sort of common uh, universalities. He called them niches, um, like the same type of animals that would look the same in different parts of the world and not be closely genetically related, but yet they'd evolved to fill the same ecological niches. So, uh, but if you look at Steinbeck's writing, a lot of it's structured in the same way, and Susan comment on this. Yeah, I mean, I think they were somewhat aware of, well, certainly of their influence on one another and certainly that they needed to talk. Um, one of the things Rickett said about Sea of Cortez is it's so much a John Ed sit by the fire. Uh, it, you know, it really captures conversation and it's that texture of going back and forth in a conversation. And, you know, Steinbeck, for instance, when he first thought of his idea of group 
behavior. Um, and he was looking, his mother was dying. He was looking at the cells. He was thinking about the cells in her body sort of reorganizing and becoming something different so that she was really a different, you know, sort of chemical and physical makeup. Um, and he said right after that, I've got to go talk to, about this to Ed Ricketts. He's got to give me the scientific basis for this. And so it's a sense that they clarified what they were thinking through a conversation. That's true of, true of each of them. Um, Ricketts was not much of a writer. And he thought Steinbeck had this, you know, the organization and the clarity and the will to follow through. He really admired that in Steinbeck. Um, and so words like what Gilly just said, words like, you know, levels, the four levels of ecology. Steinbeck talked about his books having levels. Um, and uh, but I don't think there was ever a conscious sort of we are development. Living, yeah, this parallel we're living universe holistically. thing. Yeah. Well, but, no. That, but that's a very broad thing. I don't think there was ever, I, I don't know of anything where Steinbeck said, oh, I patterned these books after Ed's, you know, feelings about ecology. And we talked about them and developed a common idea. No, but I mean, he, so, language overlaps. Yeah, yeah. But they I think the that's same, accidental. Oh, I think it's, you know, I think it they were using this. <laughs> I think they were using the same terms like participation and... You're not looking at it non-teleologically. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think there was a conscious sort of... Well, they were just... They were together using the same ideas, and so they were using the same language. And you, you see that all the time. Even once later when Steinbeck is writing Winter of Our Discontent, um, he used a scientific you know, language that was straight from Ricketts to talk about some of what he was doing in terms of survival, survivability of the species and things like that. So he's, you know, not that that's just Ricketts, it's, you know, Darwin too, but I mean, he's, they're using the same language. So I think that... But there wasn't the, a concerted mutual effort to have this solidarity presented to the public. I well, think that just happened. That's the way, the way it was. Well, it just happened. But I think Sea of Cortez was a sense of presenting their their joint views to the public. I mean, they both were using the idea of ecology and, you know, sort of holistic thinking. John wrote it, but they both thought it. And so it was, late in life, Steinbeck said it was his favorite book um, that he ever wrote. But, um, you know, I so guess we're just sort of, you know, mincing words to some extent. So well, when, how when, conscious it was. Yeah, is it a this. breach? Is it a breach of non-theological thinking to kind of look at look at that sort of meta understanding, or does that feel like yeah, I think, parsing I, I, it? To I think it? to say that they sat down and had this pact that they were going to, you know, use these <laughs> uh, methods of influencing public opinion is. I'm stirring things up here in the uh, Schilling Law Gilly household. Uh, yeah, so I think we're asking too much why here. Well. <clears throat> Yeah, but well, I'm, I'll look the at results. And of course, they wrote about Cia Cortez in similar ways because that was a joint project. Right, but I think that but, their whole work intersect. Their both their work intersect. Like, you know, Ricketts is writing about poetry, for instance. He's he's writing a love. Uh, he writes about Jeffers' poetry. He writes about levels in poetry. Actually, Ricketts' mind was always cataloging things, whether it be poetry, whether it be art or music. He loved to. To classify and catalog, he had um, hanging on his walls of the lab these charts that charted music from, um, or and art from the beginning of time, showing how various cultures had similar sort of, sort of rising periods of creativity and then plateaus. So he was he was always charting things, and I think you know Steinbeck was fascinated with that and learned a lot from Ricketts certainly because Ricketts was such a 
uh, well, as the title of the book of letters written, um, edited by Katie Rogers is The Renaissance Man of Cannery Row. So I think Steinbeck was drawn to that. But, I, you know, Steinbeck had his own interests in history, et cetera. So I don't know I, I, how conscious it was that they were influencing one another. And I, no, I don't think they were working out a program of thought, you know, but I think that they were certainly aware that together they created a kind of energy that individually they, they didn't. But they don't really talk about that. That's just <laughs> self-evident in what they do. Well, in letters, Steinbeck talks a lot about rickets. And but does he ever say what you just said? That I would never be writing as well as I do except for Ed? No. Okay, no. <laughs> well, that's my point. Okay. Bum, bum. So he was consciously aware of writing about Ed that he might say that, but maybe he was trying to mislead everyone that he really wasn't that. <laughs> Let me move us along, because um, I think it's, it's a beautiful nature of, of all of this that it could never end. <laughs> we are trapped in the web. Um, but, uh, Professor Schilling Law, I'm going to bring your words back to you um, one time. Uh, you had said, we have to understand science or we're not literate, which I loved. And I wonder if you could explain more about Oh, my. When did I say that? It sounds so nice. <laughs> In our print interview, we did uh, a few weeks back. <laughs> well, I think one has to only look at global warming to see that if you don't understand something about, you know, science, you're not going to un understand news articles that are presented to us daily about what's happening to the environment. I mean, I think environment, I agree with Al Gore that environment is one of the the most pressing concerns today and you know we have to understand global warming we have to understand what's happening with the ice cap we have to understand you know temperature fluctuations um what causes that i mean in the 40s ricketts was looking at the disappearance of the monterey sardine and that was a complex problem but it was based on you know sea temperature it was based on overfishing it was based on um fluctuations in food you know, availability in the Bay. So I think, again, coming back to this notion of um, the interconnectedness of things, that's what he was writing about. It's not, just, it's not just overfishing, it's a complex problem. And I think if you see and understand things scientifically, like you're gonna understand issues certainly in today or at any point. Um, so it's pretty easy uh, to, to see why we need science, certainly in our present day. Uh, and, but for, for uh, in the other direction, for, for literature, for you, um, Professor Gilly, how, how does literature work into uh, your daily science job, uh, career, thought, lab, courses? Hmm. Well, it wouldn't work into a daily lab course of a traditional sense, but I think it does make you look at things in a different way, um, a more holistic way, by considering um, literature. Um, I think by reading Cannery Row and uh, trying to see the Monterey that Ricketts and Steinbeck saw and lived in and the characters that uh, populated that environment, um, gives a, a dimension to going out on the rocks in Monterey Bay and counting how many barnacles and sea anemones there are that uh, you can't get it some other way. So I think if all you care about is how many barnacles are on the rocks, 
then you probably don't need literature. But if you want to have some kind of deeper understanding of what the importance of so many barnacles on a rock might be, I think it does help. Just like being aware of science helps a humanist, I think being aware of humanities and literature helps uh, a scientist think in a different way. Also, let me step in here, not that I want to answer for him, but I think that, you know, literature has storylines, narratives. And I think that, you know, science is often about narratives, not that say counting barnacles you know today versus two years ago is which is what we have our students do but what they're then looking at is disappearance of species decrease in number increase in number um there was some uh sort of noxious seaweed that appeared on the intertidal uh and so uh, you know i think you are telling narratives um steinbeck is aware of that too darwin was aware of that uh and I think, like, this, the way they set up, when Gilly's on Discovery Channel, they kind of want to set up a story with the squid being dangerous, or is it Gilly looks at squid being not so dangerous as curious. But, you know, I think literature is about telling, I mean, one thing, it's about narrative, and I think narrative is a part of science. I think that when you see science as becoming, I suppose, less just about facts and figures and more about trajectories or you know what's happening or having people understand it and participate in it so I, I, I think that's part of what you know how what we try to show our students and we read nonfiction we read like you know Rachel Carson or you know um, certainly environmental prose and people talking about the environment so that there's not you know there's not this this line between imaginative literature and you know, scientific literature. Uh, yeah, also writing, I think, uh, I hadn't really thought about that, but uh, I mean, you don't learn to write by reading scientific or legal reports. You learn to write by reading literature. Um, and, you know, believe it or not, there are scientific proposals and papers that are joys to read as just as some short story. And there's others that, of course, are just deadly dull that um, you can't make it through one page without glazing over. So I think for students to learn how to uh, write, um, that's the way to do it, is to read literature, and, and that sort of writing style will creep into scientific writing. I mean, scientific writing has to be accurate and precise, but so does the best novels. Mm -hmm. Like one of our students, actually here's her book, one of our students was an art major, and uh, she was sort of wrestling with the science in the course, but also said, well, what, what's my project going to be? That's not it. Oh, that's not it. Um, uh, but, and what she did was, you know, as they were studying this, you know, this species and the specimens in the inner tidal, so she illustrated it, and she talked about sort of a holistic view of one place. She looked at the, the flora, the fauna, the inner tidal, the history, the naming, etc. And so, basically thinking you know sort of sort of scientifically and about an, she created a narrative a story mm -hmm. well um i want to ask you just briefly about the literary scene uh and and some more of the literary figures interconnected on the monterey peninsula in steinbeck uh, and ricketts day uh, jeffers of course was was in carmel um uh, campbell can you speak a little bit about uh, the connections that those men had with each other? 
Well, Joseph Campbell, let me start with him, came to the peninsula in 1932. Uh, he was basically hitchhiking across the United States. He'd been educated in you know, Paris and had had um, master's degrees. So he was a you know, highly uh, literate young man. He came here basically to see Steinbeck's wife's sister, whom he'd met on a cruise to Hawaii. She was, she was engaged and didn't need another young man at her doorstep, so she sent him down to see John and Carol in Pacific Grove. So that's how he ended up here. Uh, he and John started discussing King Arthur. They had a kind of, they were fascinated with one another, both really intelligent, curious young men. Uh, and so he was here a few months. He kind of joined the lab group, which included Ricketts and Steinbeck and Steinbeck's wife, Carol, and uh, a number of uh, people like the Lovejoys, Rich and Tal Lovejoy. He was a reporter um, and an artist, and she was a kind of uh, very fanciful, lovely young woman. And um, there were the, uh, so they were all kind of discussing ideas. That's what they said, sit around and discuss ideas parties. Uh, Rick, uh, Joseph Campbell was attracted to Carol, so they had a, they didn't have an affair, but they had, they were attracted to one another, and uh, everybody kind of didn't end well. There was a, Steinbeck went off by himself into the Sierras, and Carol went off by herse herself, and Campbell and Ricketts went up to Alaska. So there was this kind of explosive end to it, but while he was here, he was very, you know, certainly influenced Steinbeck in writing uh, To a God Unknown, this second book he wrote, third published, and you can see a lot of ideas about nature and how nature, uh, we find spirit and God in nature, that's what Steinbeck's working on there, Ricketts, or Campbell was thinking about hero with a thousand faces and mythology and mythology in various cultures. Ricketts was also thinking about sort of transcendence of the physical to the metaphysical. So they all sort of came together at that point. Um, Jeffers, they read Jeffers' poetry. So they found the key to it all um, in, in Jeffers. And so there's that sense that Jeffers was also, in his ideas about inhumanism, was also looking at, uh, you know, sort of, don't don't think about civilization so much that civilization has sort of exhausted itself. Look at man's relationship with something more elemental, place, uh, the environment, you know, Big Sur coast. There's sort of a, you know, tragic dimension to all that. But they thought that um, Roan Stallion in particular kind of defocuses attention. Humanity is the crust to break through, that you have to find something you know, beyond humanity, some kind of spirit, some kind of spirit beyond just humanity and what humanity has sort of achieved. You can't, again, it's sort of non I mean, it's teleological to look at always at what man achieves, but look more at what kind of spiritual sustenance you can get from nature. So they're all kind of looking at that. Curiously, though, Steinbeck didn't meet Ricketts. I, Steinbeck, excuse me, Steinbeck didn't meet Jeffers when they both lived so close together. I mean, of course, Jeffers was reclusive. Steinbeck himself didn't go out of his way to meet um, other people. So they knew one another's wor work, but never met until later. Jeffers was older, wasn't he? Yeah, he was older, but he was mostly reclusive. Mm. And so Steinbeck didn't go to his cottage to meet him in 1932 when they were reading Ron Stalin. You certainly could have gone down there and said, hey, I like your poem, but no. <laughs> Well, uh, new projects on the horizon for either of you? Same project, new tools. So 
uh, I'm, next week I'm going to see Cortez to go look for squid again, this time not with my own eyes, but with sonar. So we'll be looking at squid two, three hundred uh, meters below the surface of the sea with um, sonar, trying to figure out where they are in the water column, how they're moving around, and actually trying to count them for the first time to see how many there are, so that no, no one's really got a handle on how many there are. And uh, it's a simple system down there, so if we can figure out how to do this, and I'm pretty sure we can because we've kind of done it already, um, we'll try to do it up in California and off uh, Pacific Coast because these squid are now um, invaded up here and seem to be creating some havoc with different fisheries, and so, no, but no one knows how many there are. So, so simple question. <laughs> sea of Cortez for you has, has just continued. You are, you're hooked? Uh, yeah, I, I love it there. It's a, a great place. Uh, and it's having the ability to work on you know, the squid there with such an easy um, access is um, certainly you know, good scientifically for this particular purpose. But there's um, a lot of work that could be done there that uh, needs to be done. And um, there's a lot of room for a lot of other people that work down there. So I would, you know, hope that more people do, um, students and scientists. Professor Schillinglaw. Well, I am finishing a biography of Carol Henning Steinbeck, Steinbeck's first wife, and who uh, was a fascinating woman. And if Ricketts and Steinbeck were a sort of pair and collaborators, so was Steinbeck and his wife Carol. She, he wouldn't have written the books he did without her influence from 1928 really until 1941. So she was along on the Sea of Cortez trip actually. She's not mentioned but I think she's there in the sort of we of the book, the collective we that he writes in. He doesn't mention Ricketts either um, but he writes about uh, they are the ones who have chartered the boat and so they're a kind of unit. And so I'm writing about her life so I should be finished with that soon. I want to send off the manuscript in December and then I'm doing some oh, interviews, of book of interviews of people who knew Steinbeck. Uh, I'm sort of in the process of doing that and I'm also working on a project actually with my brother um, who's a Soviet expert, a Russia expert on Steinbeck and Russia. I wrote the introduction to a Russian journal which Steinbeck wrote right after World War II. He went to Russia with Kappa and um, looked at post-war Russia and conditions and the people. But he went to Russia three times, uh, 1937, 1947, 1963. So I want to write about those experiences in Russia. So that's another project that I'm working on. So a lot, yeah, too much probably. <laughs> too many things piling up like railroad cars. Well, perhaps the next uh, Steinbeck Festival, Steinbeck and Russia. <laughs> no, the next Steinbeck Festival actually is Steinbeck and... Arthurian tales so oh, very interesting. Uh, so it's going to be exciting because it's you know it's just also the mythic kind of Steinbeck was always working with myth and um, levels of sort of mythic um, stories behind his books uh, sort of one of the ideas of these levels and so they're going to work with that so that should be exciting that's mm. next August mm. in, in Salinas at the National in Steinbeck Salinas, Center yes, and partly in Monterey we always again try to they always try to have something in Monterey and then also in Salinas, uh, three days in Salinas. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure you will each keep each other in the other's world. <laughs> <laughs> no, we 
work together again it's fun to go down to the sea of cortez i, I learned a lot um certainly about science and about the intertidal it's fascinating to you know think how you can expand and this whole notion of holistic thinking when you really go to a place and you think okay i need to understand the inner title i need to understand what you know gilly's doing i'd like to know more about you know the cacti i'd like to know more about the medicinal properties of the of the plant plants the desert environment so uh the communities the history uh, the stories i just found a press in san diego that publishes baja fiction so you think okay how can i understand the various levels of the place so in some ways that's you know what we're doing together and with students it's exciting well, thank you again, Professor Gilly. My pleasure. Professor Schillingla. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.